I'm Mark Hennick. This is the Living Well Podcast from Morneau Chappelle. In this episode of Living Well, we explore the challenges and the tragedies facing our long-term care sector. They've certainly been highlighted and amplified by the COVID-19 pandemic. Andre Picard is a health reporter and columnist for The Globe and Mail, where he's been a staff writer since 1987. He's also the author of five best-selling books, maybe six, because his latest book, available on March 2nd, is Neglected No More, The Urgent Need to Improve the Lives of Canada's Elders in the Wake of a Pandemic. Andre has been researching and writing extensively about the state of long-term care homes. He points out that three out of four COVID-related fatalities have been related to long-term residences. We've had about 10,000 deaths in Canada, and 75% of those, 7,500 of those deaths have been in institutional care. So really, they've really borne the brunt of this entire pandemic, at least on the on the death side, on the mortality side. So what's been going on there? How have uh, how has the virus been getting into these uh, situations, uh, and why has it been spreading so rapidly? Yeah, like everything, the risk comes from virus circulating in the community. So you can be in an institution, you can be locked away, but you can't keep a virus out. People are coming in and out, mostly staff. Uh, we had some unusual uh, rules in Canada where staff could work in multiple homes, which really allowed the virus to spread like wildfire, especially back in March. Uh, it just went from home to home, carried by workers inadvertently, no fault of their own, but it really created a disaster of huge proportions. When was that actually realized? And then were there any extra uh, layers put in place to try to protect people from spreading the virus? Well, you know, it was realized early on, but unfortunately, there was very little action taken. Uh, To this day, there are provinces where you can still work in multiple homes. So we really not... We've not corrected the fundamental problem. And the problem is actually even more fundamental. It's a lack of staffing. So we can't just say you can't work in more than one home. We just don't have the number of people to to do the work that's required. So that's a problem that's existed for literally decades. And this pandemic has just shone this really bright spotlight on it. Yeah. Now, how has this been impacting, do you think, uh, the mental health and well-being of the residents uh, of these facilities? I mean, there were already... I think isolation among elderly people in Canada and elsewhere was an issue anyway. So how has it affected people now? Oh, the impact has been positively devastating. We know uh, there are studies that show being lonely is about the the equivalent of smoking a pack of cigarettes a day. Uh, You know, imagine a 90-year-old smoking a pack of cigarettes a day. The impact is really, really devastating, especially when a lot of people, you know, the sad reality is, as you said, many of them were lonely in the first place. Uh, The large majority of people in these homes suffer from dementia. So it's even more... uh, perplexing for them. They don't understand why their loved ones have stopped coming. Uh, they see them at the window and like, what are you doing at the window? And it's, you can't explain that to someone. You have to, uh, the tactile touching people is really important to their emotional health. And people haven't been allowed to do that for eight, nine months now. Dr. Brian Goldman is a veteran ER physician and an award-winning medical reporter. He's the host of CBC Radio's White Coat Black Art, and his latest book is The Power of Kindness, Why Empathy is Essential in Everyday Life. 
Dr. Goldman agrees that the isolation of frail and vulnerable seniors is problematic, but he also says that the early lockdown measures were the right thing to do, if only because we didn't know enough about coronavirus or COVID-19. You know, as an initial response, I think it's generally, you know, people are going to give the system a free pass for saying, you know, we didn't know, we didn't know how infectious, we didn't know whether we had enough PPE, we didn't know if we could train uh, essential family caregivers in, in infection control. But we know now. And, and you know, I'm glad to see that that in, in Ontario and British Columbia and, and other parts of Canada, that they have made it, that the system is making an exception for people who are intimately involved in the care of their loved ones, you know, family members who feed their loved one, who come to the long-term care facility and feed their loved one and walk with them and keep them and, and, and keep them company. You know, at first they were labeled as visitors, as if they just kind of breeze in every once in a while when, you know, I remember when my father used to feed my mother twice a day and then my sister would feed my mother twice a day. And, you know, I'd come in on the weekends and do that. And, and, and uh, you know, what started off as, as uh, 15 minutes to feed to feed my mother turned into, you know, 20 minutes and then half an hour and then an hour and a half. And, and you know, you know that at that level there's no uh, frontline personal support worker who is going to spend an hour and a half feeding your loved one unless you pay them privately. And, 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 you know, people realize they have to do that. So, so, uh, you know, we certainly have seen in uh, the, the, the current residents of long-term care who've been isolated, that they, they aren't as engaged, that their general physical health and their mental well-being, their emotional well-being goes down because of isolation. And, and, uh, and we have to, we have to do a better job of balancing the needs to protect the system uh, with the needs uh, of, of individual residents. But Andre Picard will say that there's been a systemic imbalance in the treatment of our frail and elderly, and it comes down to the ingrained Western culture of ageism. I think some of it is a Western culture thing. You know, it varies how we uh, respect our elders varies differently, quite wildly between cultures. But I think this is more... Uh, a systemic problem. I, I'm not going to say that Canadians don't love their grandmothers. That's not true. But we have a society that requires, you know, people to work uh, to, you know, both uh, people in a couple to work. Uh, people live far apart. We're a huge country. Uh, multi-generational homes, for the most part, are not the norm the way they are in some countries. So there's all these factors that mean that our elders need some kind of care, systemic care. So then the question becomes, how do we provide that? Mm -hmm. And the way we've provided it is barbaric. It's putting people in institutions with 300 others, three and four to a room and saying, you know, we're going to give you a crap food. It's going to be like a prison. So we shouldn't treat our elders like prisoners. Uh, there's a way to provide care. There are many ways to provide care that's better than what we do now. How does that um or what's the what's the angle here in terms of uh, how the government provides care for uh, the elderly versus the private sector? Is is there a piece here that that we're missing? Is it is care well coordinated? I guess there's a little bit of a piece there, but I think that's overstated. There are people you know say, oh, the solution to this is get rid of all private homes, and that's not the solution. The solution is much more uh, profound and vast than that. Uh, pr the reality is private and public homes get exactly the same amount of money from the government and the private homes make their money off other things you know your cable tv uh 
you know, linen, et cetera, all this other peripheral stuff. But the reality is we provide inadequate care from our public system. And that goes to something more fundamental is that uh, Medicare doesn't cover long-term care. It covers mm -hmm. hospitals, it covers physician care. So Canada's Medicare model is a, you know, half a century out of date. If I look at European countries, they don't have this same issue because hospital care is funded the same way that long-term care is. You're going to be covered. So they, mm -hmm. the issues are very, very different there. So it's, it's about fixing our Medicare system much more fundamentally, which we've talked about uh, a few times in the past, Mark, uh, and this is just an, a glaring example of why we have to do it. Are there any national standards or otherwise in terms of the quality uh, of care homes uh, across this country or is, does it just depend on how lucky you are and where you live? You know, there's all kinds of standards. It's an incredibly bureaucratic sector. The question is, do we have the standards that we need? So mm -hmm. the standards are about, you know, how many ounces of mashed potatoes do you get? And is the fridge at the right temperature? So there are all these safety issues, but there are very few standards that talk about what's the quality of care, what's the quality mm -hmm. of life. Uh, those things are hard to measure, but that's what we need to be measuring. We don't need to be measuring to the nth degree, all these tiny little things in the uh, cafeteria restaurant. That's not what's important. What's important is the quality of life. Are people happy? Uh, so how do you do that legislatively? It's not easy, but I think, again, it's about creating a philosophy. I don't think anybody out there wants to provide bad care, but if you give them, you say, you have $60 a day to care for this person, there's only so much they can do. So a lot of it is about funding. It's about giving people freedom to, to provide care in inventive ways uh, and not be locked in by bureaucratic rules. The Living Well podcast is brought to you by WellCan, a free mental health and well-being resource offered by Morneau Chappelle. At wellcan.ca and on the WellCan app in the App Store, you'll find information, assessments, and resources to support your mental health. WellCan resources are supplied by Morneau Chappelle's expert clinicians, as well as through partnerships with some of the biggest companies from across Canada and around the world. And now back to the Living Well podcast and your host, Mark Hennick. I've never worked in a sector that where everything is so uh, hyper-prescribed. Donna Duncan is the CEO of the Ontario Long-Term Care Association. That's the largest association representing long-term care providers in Canada. She tells me about how long-term care homes are subject to complicated administrative legislation and regulations. Even if you wanted to redevelop a long-term care home, you can't without the permission of the government. If you want to make major renovations to your home, you can't without the permission of the government. The, the government really is the master uh, in the long-term care sector, uh, and, mm. and uh, I, it it, in, in my view, and having worked in other sectors, including having worked at CAMH and sit on a hospital board as well, um, it stifles uh, in a innovation, it stifles growth. And so we have a sector that's been uh, locked in time. Now, I mean, we've, it's also hard uh, to ignore the fact that you can't open a newspaper in Ontario or anywhere in Canada or across the United States for that matter. And there are stories about how hard hit uh, long-term care homes have been by COVID-19. Uh, in in many cases, uh, they they've become hotspots of infection. So, tell me about the perspective of of long-term care home providers in trying to manage this and navigate this. How are they dealing with COVID-19 on the ground? 
A year ago, January, uh, we went before the Standing Committee of Finance and Economic Affairs uh, for the province of Ontario, and we told them that we were facing a perfect storm. And this is before any of us knew what COVID-19 was going to mean for us. Uh, we had buildings, we, we have been caring for our seniors and homes in buildings that were built in, this, in, in the 60s, in the early 70s, where uh, the prescribed distance between beds was three feet, three feet, where people have hmm. shared, shared bathrooms, where the hallways aren't six feet wide. So, you know, we talk about social distancing in this world and it's, you know, two meters apart, six, six feet apart. We've been, we've been caring for our seniors in homes that don't even come close to meeting that standard, let alone half of that standard. Uh, old ventilation systems, uh, you know, successive governments over the last 30 years have failed to um, invest in, in long-term care. Uh, we had a government in 2007 that made a commitment to uh, home care and aging in place, but also in that very same year made a commitment to rebuilding our long-term care sector and nothing happened. For for-profit homes, why are they waiting for the government to give them money? Isn't it by definition that they're making money? Um, so why don't they use some of that profit uh, to make some of the improvements that you're talking about? So, so uh, it, you know, in terms of the homes, a lot of investments are happening that people don't know about, quite honestly. And uh, there are investments being made. Uh, they, they do have to have... Um, because of the way the regulatory regulatory framework works and how they're being uh, legislated, so they 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 have uh, they now have, especially since the last year, they've they've really amped up their um, uh, they, they they all have medical directors. They now have epidemiologists on staff. They've uh, they've made a lot of investments. Uh, the the for-profit homes uh, last year in wave one actually went out and procured. Uh, uh, personal protective equipment for the entire sector and made it available to uh, all nonprofit and, and, and homes across the country. Uh, and uh, people don't hear stories of that. They, they made investments in funds to support um, frontline staff who were in economic uh, hardship. Uh, they've made those funds available. Uh, they've certainly been uh, making, uh, making investments on uh, doing upgrades where they can outside of uh, government approval on some of their uh, where they have HVAC and sprinklers and things like that in their old buildings. There are still limits in what they can, can do. Donna says most of the facilities in the long-term care sector and the system itself were designed decades ago and can no longer support the needs of the current residents. When my grandmother was in long-term care in the 80s, she had tea parties. She had a parking spot. Uh, today, the, the average length of stay in long-term care is less less than two years and increasingly less than one. So prior prior mm -hmm. to COVID, uh, really complex care needs, uh, end-stage dementia, uh, heavy heavy work. The majority of our residents need full care. They need they can't dress themselves. They are unable to to feed themselves. People are in long-term care not because they want to be, but because they need to be. Their families can't care for them anymore. They can't care for themselves, and so the the weight of this on our staff. So we have um, parts of the province of Ontario and parts of the country where there are no nurses, where they don't have mm. nurses. And so they're working only with agency staff. Uh, they're working short. 
So we, we have had a year in long-term care uh, where fear, anxiety, trauma, wholesale sectoral trauma is what we, we are now facing. And it could have been avoided if 20 years ago, we'd actually rebuilt the sector. Hmm. Well, you know, considering the amount of stress and trauma that frontline long-term care staff have been experiencing, uh, and then considering that in the context that you just mentioned, that it's a, it, it, uh, according to you, is a, a hyper-regulated uh, environment in many ways, then why are we still seeing, is it a staff training issue or a burnout issue or what, where we're seeing repeated stories of abuse, of, uh, you know, recently doorknobs being removed uh, without people knowing? And obviously, these aren't home policies. These are egregious cases that are happening outside of the boundaries of what's supposed to happen. Um, antipsychotics being over-prescribed for compliance and dementia. Why are these kinds of things happening uh, so frequently in long-term care homes? You know, I, I can't speak to any details of, of, of uh, what's happening in homes. And, and some of those uh, issues have identified were things that were specified in, in uh, I believe, in retirement homes. Uh, what I would say is, why are we having uh, outbreaks in long-term care? Why, why do we continue to see outbreaks in long-term care? I, I would say the factors continue to be the same. We have uh, staff implosion. So you get one case, staff get frightened, and, and they're even less resilient. This, this wave, what people don't fully appreciate in wave one, our frontline staff, they were responsible for the care of the deceased in a home. So and nobody would come into our homes. Funeral homes wouldn't even come into the homes. So they had to take the deceased and, and place them in body bags and prepare them for the funeral homes and take them out. So imagine you've cared for somebody for, for years. Yeah. And so when you think about what they went through in wave one, through conditions like that, and those who made it through, and in wave one, the majority of homes had no outbreaks. So, and those who, who didn't have any outbreaks were just terrified about what was going to happen in a, in a, in a second wave. Those, who, those who'd been through an outbreak in wave one uh, were terrified about what was going to happen in wave two and their ability and their capacity to manage. What are care home providers doing uh, to support the psychological health and safety of their staff? We, you know, we've been we've been talking a lot about about mental health and uh, uh, what we found in wave one was everybody just sent us links um, and links are great, uh, but a link to a lot of programs that are not trauma informed. And we we have really faced and are facing continue to face and, and experience wholesale sectoral trauma, individual trauma. The family trauma. So we we've been helping our members connect in with with local mental health organizations, CMHA, others. Uh, we've been and I've spent a lot of time talking to people where we have had serious outbreaks. Where where I've been talking to the leadership, saying, "Are you getting the help you need? How can I help? Can I connect you with somebody? Uh, you, it, it's okay not to be okay. How are we going to help each mm -hmm. other?" Yeah, I, I think that that self-help piece is great. And like you say, you can send all the links you want. But I did my trauma training yes. at one of your previous uh, employers, actually. Um, so you need to have access to professional services as well. So are care home providers providing comprehensive benefits specifically for 
counseling and psychotherapy? Yeah, so where we have uh, a lot of our, well, our larger members certainly have EAP access, uh, we, we are doing what we can to uh, make the resources available and working with the Ministry of Long-Term Care and the Ministry of Health to, to make sure those are happening. Uh, we have worked with AMHO and CMHA as well to, to get those supports in place. Uh, Homewood has been uh, providing uh, supports to, the, to uh, folks as well. And then Beacon, Mind Beacon is also making uh, supports available. Is it enough? No. No, it's not enough. Uh, it's not enough. Uh, just given the, the, the scope and scale of the trauma, it's, it's not enough. Uh, and we are seeing daily people leaving uh, frontline staff, long-serving managers, uh, directors of care nurses, uh, where people are leaving the sector. And you know, what's remarkable is we've been working with the government of Ontario as an association over the last year, trying to get more people to come into the homes so that we can you know, build the reserve forces and people aren't coming. And the government uh, has been supporting the sector and, and providing wage incentives for PSWs, for nurses, um, building an entry level uh, program to bring people in where they can uh, skill up to become PSWs in the homes and people aren't coming. And it's not about money. It, it, really, it really isn't about money. And the, I think the only way we're gonna get people into the homes uh, to work, and we desperately, desperately need reserves uh, for today, but also for tomorrow. I think we have to appreciate the population over 80 is gonna double in the next uh, 13 years. And uh, we are so ill prepared for what is coming, but uh, you know, we're, we're trying to stabilize for today and, and we're being really challenged on uh, getting people to come to work in our sector. If we do have a third wave, I, I'm not quite sure what we're going to do. So uh, I do think we have, there's a moral imperative here where um, we all need to find a way to start to build, uh, to change the channel on how we talk about this, uh, which is what's happening in Australia. Actually, they, they're really changing the the, the the political leaders actually have really started to talk more positively about how we're going to come together and rebuild. We need the kind of leadership where there's a call, uh, a real call to purpose and action here, where we all come together and rally around our seniors. It can't be about owners. It can't be about old homes. Uh, this is ultimately about people uh, and our seniors and uh, our duty of care to them, quite honestly. My thanks to Donna Duncan, Dr. Brian Goldman, and Andre Picard for shining a light on the challenges facing the residents of long-term care homes, their family members, and the staff who work at them. Andre's upcoming book once again is Neglected No More, The Urgent Need to Improve the Lives of Canada's Elders in the Wake of a Pandemic, and that's available everywhere on March 2nd. That's all for this week, and thanks to you, as always, of course, for listening to the Living Well podcast for Morneau Chappelle. You've been listening to the Living Well Podcast. Mark Hennick is our host and executive producer. If you like what you heard, subscribe to the show. There's no cost involved. You just hit the subscribe button wherever you get your podcasts. Leave us a comment and a rating to let us know how we're doing. For more information about the show and the WellCan Project, visit wellcan.ca. The Living Well Podcast is produced for Morneau Chappelle by Mark Hennick and Eye Contact Productions. I'm Dave Trafford.